Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. How can we faithfully navigate the complexities of race in our everyday relationships? Professors Crystal Hayes and Viola Vasquez join us on the podcast to talk about their book, Healing Conversations on Race, Four Key Practices from Scripture and Psychology. These women partnered on this book with two other colleagues, Joshua Nabb and Charles Lee Johnson. Together, they developed the HEAL model for building and deepening cross-race relationships. The model is grounded in the narrative of scripture and informed by psychology and social science. Crystal and Viola are both inspiring and practical, and I think you'll really enjoy learning from them. Also, I am pleased to tell you that InterVarsity Press is offering a discount on this book for listeners of the podcast. Just use the code IVPPOD25 for 25% off and free shipping when you purchase Healing Conversations on Race at ivpress.com. You can find a link to the book and the discount code in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the episode, you'll hear it in an excerpt from our conversation where we talk about how to overcome the sense of walking on eggshells around the issue of race. So let me tell you a little bit more about our guests. Dr. Crystal Hayes is a licensed clinical social worker. She is the director of the Doctor of Social Work program and an associate professor of social work at California Baptist University. And Dr. Viola Vasquez is a licensed psychologist and a tenured professor of psychology in the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences at California Baptist University. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here. I really want to talk about your book, but first I would love to hear a little bit more about your stories. So can you tell me a little bit about your educational backgrounds and how you came into your fields? Sure, I'll start. So, um, so I'm Viola and I'm a licensed psychologist and I first became interested in psychology really as a, a high schooler and uh, intro to psychology in high school, but um, but really decided to dive into it and follow it through as a career as I learned more about the ways I could truly help people who were struggling and suffering in life. And so continued on um, straight from high school into college, studying psychology and then into graduate school. And now, and I always knew I wanted to be in academia. Also, I always enjoyed teaching, educating. And so I've split my time doing that for most of my career, but more heavily on the side of teaching. Um, but I also do some clinical work on the side. Great. Yeah. How about you, Crystal? Yeah. So Crystal Hayes here. Um, my story is not as, as clear and in, intentional as I think. Um, I feel like social work, uh, uh, kind of 
called me to it. I didn't really even know what social work was, as I find many people um, don't necessarily. I knew um, that I wanted a, a career in service and helping folks. I wasn't sure what that would look like. And then just in my senior year of undergrad as a psych major, I took this intro to social work class because it was super convenient for my schedule and seemed like an easy thing to get me out. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with this whole idea that I could pursue a career that was focused on, you know, helping those who are marginalized and like rooting for the underdog. And it's a, a profession that is explicit about justice issues and diversity and like, you know, all these things. It got me totally fired up. Um, and so I, I moved into social work, doing a master's in social work, and then um, went into community mental health, which was something else I was super surprised that I would love and then and fell in love with doing all of that work. Um, and then to getting my PhD in social work and just really having this opportunity throughout my career to blend the things that I felt like my heart was kind of pricked uh, mm. about um, and just thankful was able to like make a career out of pursuing those things. So a lot of uh, mental health promotion work, particularly with African-Americans, particularly in black churches, um, working in community mental health. I did not think that I never imagined myself as a, as a teacher or professor. And again, kind of stumbled into that. And thankfully it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> so I, do. <laughs> I hope my students would agree to, um, um, enjoy teaching. And so I've been doing that for about the past um, six years, which is where Viola and I met. And yeah, it's been great. It's been great so far. Such a journey for both of you. Wow. Well, you know, most of our listeners are graduate students or professors. That's kind of where we where we center our podcast conversations. And I'm really curious to hear some of your reflections on teaching. And I'm wondering if you have any advice in particular for those who are new to their journey through academia, maybe new graduate students or kind of just starting as faculty members. Mm. You want to go first, Viola? I feel like I have a okay. process on it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I've actually been asked this question a few times recently. And I think one of the things that I've learned throughout my teaching career uh, is that uh, it, I think I do a better job teaching when I'm myself, mm. as opposed to trying to teach like somebody else or try to present some type of um, way I want students to perceive me. But when I'm just myself and um, relating to the students as a human being, as opposed to professor student, mm -hmm. but we're all human beings. So we're all on a learning journey. And I just happen to know some stuff that you don't that I'm going to share with you. Mm -hmm. And I tend to feel like I'm more comfortable in teaching when I do that. And I feel like the students get more out of it and um, feel more like they can approach me for even learning more. So that's, I think, one of the things I've learned that I would encourage others to try to do. It's it's such great advice and so hard to do sometimes, but it's really it's good to hear. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I I, I was thinking on this because there's so many things. I feel like there's so many things that I've I've discovered and learned. Um, 
I currently am overseeing a doctor of social work program. And so many of those doctoral students are looking to, you know, perhaps move into um, higher education and teaching and things. And so we've designed this course called Answering the Call to Teach, where it gives folks these, this experience with like what it's like on this other side, right? Pull behind the curtain and see what it's like to, you know, be a professor, the the nitty gritty, the technical stuff of creating syllabi and course evals and like the trauma of course evals and like those sorts of things that I don't remember ever learning in my doctoral program. But then also um, the, the much, much of what Viola just said, the, the human interaction of it, right? The thing that does bring us joy when we do it, that makes it worth all the work and, and all of that. And so one of the things that always tickles me when students take this class and, and I don't teach it personally, some of our other faculty teach it. But when I get reports back from students who are like, yeah, I don't think I ever want to teach. And I'm like, that's amazing. And that's probably uh-huh. a great thing to discover at this point in your career. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, for some of us, we t- we we start off on this path where, and this was the case for me, where it's just like assume these are the things that you'll do. You know what I mean? Like you're just going to move into higher ed and you're going to do these things. And it's kind of prescripted. And so I just appreciate watching students like, like dismantle the bundle right okay so maybe I want to pursue these scholarly things and move into these these spaces but maybe I don't want to teach because it's not well suited to my personality right like and because I you know I don't feel like I can be as connected to and empathetic with my students as maybe I imagined in my mind and then there's lots and lots of others who discover like absolutely sign me up right? And do so with maybe a little bit more realistic expectations around this is work. We don't just show up and like, you know, tap dance for our students. There's a lot of, you know, um, scholarship behind what you do in the classroom. And so, um, you know, that is that there's a that's a that's the shortest answer I can give to a whole ton, a laundry list of things that I have learned, like work and don't learn and are continuing to learn, right? Like in this moment of like course prepping this week around Mm -hmm. what's a better way, what's a better way to serve our students to like help walk them down this journey. So it's, it's a never ending quest for sure. It's really fun to talk to you both. You, you have, um, you have great ideas that I'm excited to share. Mm -hmm. And one of those uh, places where you have great ideas is in your most recent book, which I want to talk about. So the book is entitled Healing Conversations on Race, Four Key Practices from Scripture and Psychology. This book is so unique. You have created a model that integrates elements of psychology and attachment theory and emotionally focused therapy and history, all with scripture and spiritual formation. It's kind of all put together. So I would love for you to tell us the story of how this model came to be and how you and your co-authors decided to frame it as a book. You have two other co-authors who participated in this with you. Yeah, Viola's got to start this one. Okay, I'll start this one. So I think we all, each of us have a different starting point for what got us into the book. And so we all have our own story, let's say. So I'll share my uh, story and For me, the thought process began in 2020 when there was so much going on in our world, right? And and a lot of race-related unrest. And 
for me, that brought up a lot of feelings, um, fear, uncertainty, and just questions about, well, how can, if I can help in any way, how can I help? Because I saw a lot of the Christian community really at odds um, with each other over these things. And, um, and I, you know, knowing I want to bring my brothers and sisters together in some way, is there a way to do that? Especially because for me, I have so many different pieces of my life where I felt like I was pulled in different directions. So um, married to a um, retired police officer who is um, by outward appearance, he's he's white, but he's um, European. He's from Spain. So he is Spanish speaking, has an accent, but appears white. I have um, mixed race kids um, and I am mixed race myself. So I have black family members, I have white family members. And so I was pulled in so many different directions between my black family, white family, police officer family, and wanting to bring people together. And so for me, that was the beginning part of thinking about how to do that and how to use um, my training and knowledge base and pulling that together. And then started having conversations with my colleagues and then each of them were drawn into it for different reasons. Um, So I'll let Crystal and share her side. Yeah, so I am thankful that um, God began to download some things in Viola, and mm-hmm. and like she said, she she just you know started kind of extending the invitation and and having some conversations with a few of us, and at at just first glance of of what she had in mind, I was like, sign me up, and I know who she is as a professional, and so anything that she's leading, I'm just gonna jump on the bandwagon. <laughs> because she has that kind of professional reputation so you know (laughs) listeners just you know make sure your reputation precedes you so um when she when she uh shared this this I don't even know what it could have been called at that time but just you know a topic let's say Mm because it wasn't fully fully um developed yet um it spoke to me because um I have I feel like always been drawn towards um, issues related to race um, and 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 the ways we interact with folks across racial lines. So I identify as a black woman, grew up in predominantly black, you know, spaces. But my family moved to the suburbs where I, you know, as a what like eighth grader where I experienced minority status in some yeah. unique ways right and so just remember these formative years throughout you know high school and college of just all kinds of interesting sticky difficult painful like all of the above you know joyful right just experiences um, that have to do with race and I think that's part of what led me to social work this idea that I could be in a profession that was explicit about the messiness that comes with race and culture and diversity mm-hmm. right and that that's something that I could incorporate into um, my vocation I'm sure that's part of what drew me um, um, to that and so this the when these conversations started happening really when when it felt like for many, the world had turned upside down in 2020, not just because we were living through, you know, a, a pandemic, um, but but also just this kind of what seemed like racial upheaval, yeah. <laughs> right? That um, 
happened in 2020, I, similar to Viola, um, you know, remember being approached by folks or like being in a position where, where people, particularly white people were like, what is happening? Um, how do I do something about it? And mm-hmm. so it was a really mm-hmm. interesting place to be in as a black person, or I imagine other people of color, um, where there was sudden interest yeah. right, in like, what is happening? Um, I believe you. It was a little bit of that. And um, what do we do about it? And so, you know, this idea that like perhaps we could, you know, develop and and, um, help facilitate answers to some of those questions or at least a process that helps folks get to their own answers about like, what do I do Mm -hmm. from a sincere heart of like, my eyes maybe have been open to some things that I didn't see before. And like I'm not okay with just, you know, things being the way they are. And so this felt like just a prime opportunity to step in and try to be a resource and develop something that could help people um, walk through that journey. Well, it's such a beautiful model that you put out there. Uh, it is, so you you call it HEAL, H-E-A-L, and you lead us through four practices. There's humility for H empathy, acceptance, and love. And then you recommend that using these four practices in discussion with others about race can really bear fruit. One thing I wanted to ask you about you, this is a really, uh, this models has a very, it has a very personal focus. You really emphasize one-on-one conversations or like at the very most like small group. And you write in the book, you write, We believe that micro-level individual changes such as these have the power to influence and lead to macro-level systemic changes, thereby dually creating changes within individual relationships and within communities and churches. And this direction feels very different from a lot of the anti-racism work that I've seen recently. In fact, in the book, you never use the phrase anti-racism, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting. So I would, could you unpack this for us? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, that was purposeful. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> yes, yeah, it was purposeful, mm. but um, because we really did want to provide a different approach and and with and one of my favorite lines in the book, we all we often talk about our favorite lines, but one of my favorite lines in the book is that we're not calling people to be less racist, but to be more Christ-like. Mm, yeah. uh, this book is written for Christians, and as Christians, we're really considering the journey of building cross-racial relationships to be a part of the sanctification process, to be formed into the image of Christ. And so, yeah, it's about becoming more like him. And as we become more like him, that means that we are seeking ways to become unified with people who are different from us, Mm -hmm. even if they have different ideas and opinions. And sometimes it's hard that we move towards those relationships. And we work to not just have conversations, but to build relational connections, like deeper connections with people who are different from us which is where the attachment theory piece of it comes in because we really think that those relationships are about bonds and deeper connections or attachments with people that can really be healing if we develop a closer 
em empathic relationship with someone who is different from us racially, ethnically, um, if we can do that, that that connection might help us to feel safe to move out into a relationship with someone else who's different yeah. racially and ethnically, and maybe that relationship can be healing for us so that we can reach out to another. So mm -hmm. those personal relationships we're hoping can encourage people to feel safe to create more relationships and that can you know grow and grow. Yeah. 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 And, and I'll ask, so yes, it was intentional. It was intentional. And I'm like a little bit nervous even answering this question because mm. you know, I identify strongly as a social worker. And by and large, the field of social work has chosen to adopt an anti-racist stance, right? right? And for all kinds of reasons, I understand it. I, you know, I get it. I read anti-racist work, all of that. And I think particularly as a Christian in, you know, the space of like, you know, the social sciences, there is something that just feels unsettling about that whole idea of training folks to be to to be in a, in, um, a stance of opposition towards something hmm. without being very clear about what we are a proponent for. And so that's the piece that feels yeah. like something is missing, right? In clinical practice, I would never like engage in practice to help a client be anti-drug user right <laughs> let's figure out how you can like be in a position of being an anti-drug user okay great but then what do i do if my if this is the water i swim in my whole identity my whole friend group is all folks who use drugs and you mm -hmm. come at me saying i need you to be anti-drug user that's great theoretically, but then what does that look like? What am I pro then? Mm -hmm. So then, you know, I mean, this is, I mean, that's just kind of common sense for, you know, in, in the space of direct practice, you would rather help someone identify the things that they enjoy. What kind of life do you want to have? What kind of position do you want to move towards? What kind of friend group is, is, is what you should have? And then we walk people along this path of like becoming the thing that they want to be that will naturally draw them further away from the thing that they don't want, right? Yeah. But approaching someone with an anti-position to something, not only does it just force people into their camps and like they, uh, we are very tribal as human beings. Right. And if you say you against somebody, something, then the the opposite side will also feel the need to like plant their flag in opposition towards you. So look, we're trying to avoid all of that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I believe we still want to move towards systemic institutional macro level change. Our approach in this work, and it's not the only, and folks should like surround themselves with lots of different models mm -hmm. and understandings out there. But our approach is that it is extremely difficult, near impossible to move towards that big societal level change if you haven't yet like done the micro level work of helping to transform folks' minds and their hearts about something. And we believe that that happens primarily in relationship with another human being, that, that God has created us and and this whole human project in such a way that we are supposed to be in relationship with others and so the best way for us to work out our thoughts and feelings and experiences about race 
is in relationship with another human being. That when your heart's been transformed by that experience, like you will have a very difficult time then tolerating policies and programs mm-hmm. and institutions that are like, you know, um, um, in opposition to that that experience that you have had. Yeah. And can I add something also of Crystal made me think about just the idea that sometimes when people hear about anti-racist work, um, in addition to all that Crystal said, is that people begin to just think about the idea of racism. And then in thinking just about that, they say, well, I'm not a racist. I don't need to do any work in this regard, even though I know that work talks about it a little bit deeper. But when people hear that, it can make them just want to just shut out the work, doing anything related to it. But we tend to see like this whole idea of racism as more on a continuum. It's Mm -hmm. not that you're racist or you're not racist. Is that we can certainly have people who are intentionally racist, right? And they um, have you know hatred in their heart towards people of different race racial backgrounds. But there's also maybe kind of in the middle of a continuum this idea of just being apathetic, not really thinking it really matters, not caring, not doing anything about the hurt um, and the pain that's been caused by um, individual as well as, as well as systemic racism um, to people of color. And we're really advocating that we're moving in the direction of being intentional about doing something to move towards healing the, the hurts, healing of relationships. And so we can be anywhere on that continuum, I suppose, but I really advocate for like, let's do something about it. Let, let's move towards building relationships with people and, and healing, healing some hurts. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things that I noticed that came up several times in your book that is, I think, connected with this idea of um, trying to be more Christ-like rather than just merely less racist um, but the the fruits of the spirit, this came up multiple times in the book. You talk about the fruits of the spirit in relationships. And I think this makes so much sense. And I'm curious to hear more about the way that you view the fruits of the spirit as a key element of healing conversations. Well, I think that the fruit of the spirit is the way that we were envisioning like living out um, our model. And right, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, so on um, down the line that all of those qualities um, are really ways that if we dig into them, we can practice in our way, in our relationships with other people. And so really the heal model is kind of like a condensing of what the fruit of the spirit is into Mm -hmm. a succinct, easy to remember acronym, right? but it's really um, kind of the, how we're putting you know, our boots on the ground, let's say, and and, and actively engaging in um, building relationships. So finding ways like self-control, right, is one of the fruit of the spirit. So how do we practice self-control when we're having a conversation with somebody who's saying things that we really don't like mm-hmm. and that are hard to hear and that we disagree with? Um, and, and how do we practice love and gentleness? And so we're kind of saying, well, if we really sum that up, we do it by first being humble, right? Humility is really recognizing that there's this, um, like in Philippians, it talks about, you know, Christ's humility and how he 
kind of gave himself. He's, it was this self-sacrificial, this self-emptying type of humility um, where he said, I'm going to, you know, for him, it was laying down his life for us um, while we were still sinners. And so how can we do that and model Christ-likeness in these conversations? Um, and it's through thinking pretty intentionally about what it is to show love and be joyous and you know, gentle and self-control, all of the fruit of the spirit. So that's how we kind of, I think, envision that it's really an ongoing process where we're cultivating each of those intentionally as we're thinking about having conversations on race while we're having the conversation and then after the fact. Yeah. So it's an ongoing process. Yeah. 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 The, the, the only thing that comes to um, mind for me is this idea that um, much of what scripture has to offer, just even in the, the example of the life and ministry of Jesus, it's simple. It is <laughs> the, the problem is it's hard, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you know, with the heal acronym, and even with this idea of of um, you know focusing on the fruit of the spirit as the way we walk this thing out, um, it's simple that if we if we are um, bold enough and decide that we want to pursue Christ-likeness, the requirements that he has for us are very simple. But even in the the, the ways that that looks, how, how, how that manifests itself in our everyday relationships, it is fairly simple. Yeah. The challenge is it's very difficult for us to actually <laughs> do it because it takes this, 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 um, continual, you know, dying to ourselves. And, and that's what the fruit of the spirit reminds us of, right? How it is that we, uh, that we need to lay our own, you know, rights and deservingness and all this kind of stuff aside in pursuit of something that's so much better. And it's mm-hmm. so hard for us to do. It's yeah. so, so hard for us to do. Um, but it's very simple. And so I think throughout the book, we try to emphasize the doing nature of the work um, and that it doesn't have to be overly complex and complicated in how we do it, um, but it will feel very hard for most of us mm-hmm. because it is um, it goes against our, our nature of just selfishness and you know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. very tribal and, and all of that, but it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. And we've you know been trained as professionals to listen empathically to people and to listen for the deeper emotions that people are trying to express. And we, you know, we've trained to reflect those back to them. That's in clinical work is what we do. And it's really what we're encouraging people to do in these conversations but even with our training, even with my training, it is hard. Yeah. I don't always do that when I'm having conversations about difficult topics. Mm-hmm. But we're encouraging people to 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 do their best to stay there, to really enter into this place of listening deeply. Mm-hmm. And that's the empathy part, right? It's in listening deeply for the deeper emotions that people are trying to express related to whatever experience that they're talking about. And then more than that, like, what do they need? What, what's the relational 
um, need behind that feeling. So if they're feeling scared, you know, they might need someone just to help them feel safe, mm-hmm. and, you know, and comforted if they're feeling sad. And if we can stick in that spot, which is very, very hard, people become more vulnerable. They, they, they feel more connected. They're more willing to stick there with you. Uh, but when we get defensive and we're not listening and we just want to jump in with our own thought and opinion, then those conversations often go awry. They don't work out very well. But I know as a trained license, licensed professional, even I mess up sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's such hard work and there is such a, um, like an, a sense of exposure and vulnerability when you really bring your whole self to it. Um, which uh, makes me think about one of the other ideas that you bring up um, several times is you talk, you talk about attachment theory. And I was really surprised to see this in a book about conversations on race, but I can also really see how it fits. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about attachment theory. Maybe not everyone knows um, maybe the definition of attachment theory, but then a little more about how attachment styles can impact cross-racial relationships. Oh, sure. So, yeah, we draw on this idea that's really common in psychology to talk about attachment um, relationships. The idea is that you know, when kids are born, they you know, have a someone in their life who they need to connect to who's going to take care of them, right? Typically, you know, the mom and dad. And they begin to develop a sense of, uh, can I trust these people to take care of my needs? Um, do they come around and feed me when I need to, care, you know, hug me when I'm crying? And we develop um, expectations that eventually we begin to think, okay, this is the way the world works. And so if we have a really loving, caring family, and we expect that the world is going to be loving and caring. And also we ourselves feel like, oh, we must be lovable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we develop a sense of security in our relationships or what we call our attachments. Um, but if we have people in our lives who aren't super caring or a, or worse than that, right, even abusive, yeah. we begin to expect that the world is in a safe place. And so we develop what we would consider like an insecure attachment where we feel like we're not lovable or the world isn't safe and the world isn't loving. Um, and oftentimes when we have experiences, this is kind of what we've kind of developed in our conceptualization, is that we can have similar types of expectations for cross-racial relationships. Mm-hmm. Maybe because of our experiences or because of things we've been taught from our family, we can begin to feel like either people who are racially different are safe and we can have secure, uh, healthy attachments with them, or they we might feel like they're unsafe. Mm-hmm. Either because we feel like they aren't loving or that we can't be lovable to them. And so um, we believe that we just kind of have these expectations um, for relationships and that unfortunately, because of a lot of hurt that we've had in cross-racial relationships, we kind of go into those relationships with those expectations or we avoid those relationships altogether, right? We just separate ourselves out and never have opportunities to relearn and to develop new expectations or new, what we call attachment narratives. Like we develop like these stories, we tell ourselves about what these relationships are gonna be like. And so we think that having healing conversations on race is a way for us to be able to rewrite those stories, to have like new expectations for relationships by entering into that healthy conversation with somebody who is racially different, who can 
teach us that our expectations don't always need to be met as we think they are, that actually we can have safety and security in these relationships. Yeah. But let me give you an example of how this works. (laughs) We got lots of stories. There's stories in the book, but because we're actually doing this work, we got lots of stories. So um, through the process of, you know, the last you know, year and a half or so of even um, developing this work. So I described the the four of us as authors and a little bit of our background. So um, Josh Knapp, he's one of our co-authors, white male. And, you know, in all transparency, not necessarily like for me, a sense of safety <laughs> working with a white male, you know, mm. professional setting, right? Lots and lots of family history, lived experience that has suggested to me um being interacting with white men or you know working professionally with white men is not necessarily the safest environment for me right and so i'm coming in already with that narrative Mm -hmm. right lots and lots of history lived experience not just my own but from generations right that this is a proceed with caution sort of environment okay so that being said we embark on this this journey right and through the course of just all kinds of conversations about all sorts of things. And I mean, we were meeting regularly in the development of this book. And a lot of it was like taking care of business, but a lot of it was also like talking about the news and just what's happening and just, you know what I mean? Conversations where um, there were opportunities for some of these personal experiences to come up and, and there would be a response. And so there was a few situations where in our conversations, um, you know, Josh, whether he knew he knew it intentionally was like working the hill model or not, uh, was very responsive, was very um, affirming, very empathetic, right? Was able to respond to some criticisms that I may have had or some difficult situations that I was in um, with, you know, genuine care and concern and just like, like Christ-likeness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have children that are the same age. And so even just sharing about some of the fears and concerns I have about my Black sons and what they might experience in the world and him as a white man not being able to understand that, but still able to tap into this kind of shared helplessness that we may both experience as parents and, mm-hmm. and offering a sincere like, I'm sorry that that has to be your experience, right? Like that must be very difficult as a mom of black sons, right? So to hear something like that from the mouth of a white man uh, is is whether I'm realizing it or not, rewriting attached yeah. narratives in my mind, right? Is changing my perspective of the world. Mm-hmm. So much so that um, sometime, I think it was after we had, pub- I think after the book actually published, I found myself in a meeting uh, in a professional setting, it was myself and probably like six white men in the room. So, you know, my natural, sure. natural, like, proceed with caution, right? Bells are, are uh, all the alarm bells are off, right? It's mm-hmm. me, a room full of white men. And we were on a committee where the topic of of the day was making some determination on the the, basically the fate of a young black man. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm putting in a very precarious situation here in this in this particular setting. And so throughout the course of the meeting, and I, you know, I this doesn't all dawn on you at the moment, right? I can tell the story now with self-reflection, right? Yes. But in this meeting, as it ended, 
I began to really just share with the group, right? My personal experience, how this black man reminds me of my brother, um, you know, the, the, maybe the emotions that are coming up for you right now, what I would ask of them to consider maybe, you know, something, right. So it just, I don't even know what was happening in the room at the time, but I felt over overcome with this kind of um, need to be much more vulnerable than I would have in any other, mm-hmm. any, any other moment. Right. The meeting ended with several of these white men thanking me oh. and approaching me with their own backgrounds and stories and histories. I mean, like these hallway conversations that I would have never anticipated in a million years where, you know, they responded essentially to the, um, the, the, I don't use the word vulnerability. I'm trying to think of another word um, to, to basically what I shared with them in that yeah. moment. And so as I thought back on this meeting, it dawned on me, oh, duh. And I had to go back to Josh and tell him, you're helping rewrite my attachment narrative, oh, right? Yeah. That, that something in this healing conversation process with Josh Knapp, who is a white man, helped me to approach this situation with other white men who had never gone through the heel model, right? Mm-hmm. Much differently with maybe a different perspective, a different, and to my surprise, and I'm grateful to my surprise, their response was much different than I would have ever imagined. Now, there's no guarantee that that's going to always happen, right? right? There's no guarantee right. that every room of white men, if I like, you know, I'm trying to be authentic and, and, and right. connect is going to respond in that way. But now I at least have an exception to the rule in my mind. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, at least I have, I have other circumstances and, and situations and stories to draw from as I engage in the world as a black woman and, and have interactions with folks who are racially different from me. Right. And that's, I think the beauty and the key to this whole process that if folks are daring enough to, um, and committed enough to engage in this work, you have the opportunity to rewrite some things in your own mind that will influence the way you move in the world with folks who are racially different. And so I will add to the story too. So at the, you know, at the end of these hallway conversations with these white, you know, a few white men that approach me and are like, you know, super helpful and, you know, grateful and ready to have conversations about race and all of this, there were some genuine expressions of, I think you're right. You know, how can we make change? What might be the next step? that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the big picture and many of the anti-racist work is positioned in this idea of like dismantling structures and systems and all this kind of stuff, but you can't really get to the systemic change when you haven't yet had these, these hard, you know, one-on-one sorts of conversations that transform hearts and minds. Yeah. So now I believe, I believe these, you know, white males, who who had this experience with me um, and felt some need to offer a commitment to maybe addressing things, maybe actually willing, maybe, mm-hmm. right? Actually willing to create programs or policies or structures or things that might um, make situations different for, for Black people in that organization, right? But it started first with a very micro interaction. Yeah. That is a great story. Go ahead. 
those interactions, um, I think it's important that for in our model, it's they go both ways, meaning that whoever's having the conversation as racially different people that so if it's a white person and a black person or whatever the racial combination that both person in the conversation has the opportunity to share their experience their emotions their needs it's not a one-way conversation where it's just the person of color sharing their experience and then the white person listens and has to respond it's it's a mutual conversation that's where we think you know a big part of the healing comes that both people get to feel heard and get to feel connected well these i mean i really want to talk about how to get some of these ideas um like how to kind of package them up and help our listeners to use them in their work because we've we've got women in academic and professional context they're the ones who are listening here and first of all they should buy the book and read it <laughs> but as <laughs> but that one like I, I think we need some extra tips because I feel like especially as they navigate these power dynamics in academic spaces and you know, and some of our listeners are working at secular schools, some are at Christian schools. So my first question is like, how can how can listeners use the ideas in this book with colleagues? Do you think people who are pretty much on the same level? Or it's it's more complicated if you're thinking about your supervisor, but what tips do you have for relationships with colleagues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Like if, if we can just like grab just the H-E-A-L and on a daily basis trying to figure out like how to be intentional with even one of the letters, um, if not all of them. Um, I, I think and I think you can do that with colleagues. Um, you don't have to know where the other person's at necessarily to kind of self-reflect and say, how can I be humble? and empathic and accepting of emotional experiences and demonstrating Christ-like love mm-hmm. um, in, in any particular moment. Um, as we were talking about the E, the empathy part of it um, can be hard because we're looking at the emotions and then the workplace people oftentimes aren't describing or expressing their emotions. Right. Um, we try and stay more um, you know, cognitive. But I think um, if conversations on race come up if they do and when they do I guess I should say to for ourselves be able to just take that step back and reflect momentarily in this moment what is the most important one of those practices Mm -hmm. for me to be able to um, stay in this conversation Mm -hmm. and to demonstrate Christ-likeness and so sometimes it might be just humility sometimes it might be okay let's talk about emotions or at least let me kind of try and understand their emotional experience even if they're not expressing it mm-hmm. um and or it might be just managing our own emotions we talk about using um like christian meditative type skills to try to recognize our emotions and then just sit with them um without judging them and being aware of them inviting god into our emotional experience because we might find ourselves getting mad and and wanting to say something and we might just need to step back for a moment and say okay god come into this experience help me understand the deeper level that Mm -hmm. i'm actually dealing with right now and just be with me and that might be like the key in the moment and so maybe just picking one of the practices in the moment could be helpful that's good 
Look, Viola is very kind and gracious, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take it a step further. Okay, do it. <laughs> Look, this whole thing is designed to be done in in relationship. So my challenge to your listeners: mm-hmm. buy a book for you and for somebody else. Wow. There you go, <laughs> and actually do it because here's what you'll find: you'll find that the chapters have been organized in such a way that it leads like the culminating experience is to actually have a conversation with someone who is racially different from you. We mm-hmm. built it in that way. And so just the way you you described it and how it feels like um, a workbook, yeah, it kind of, yeah. so so if you actually commit to the process and, and, and work through the model, don't skip the journaling activities. Mm-hmm. I'm guilty of doing that. I'll read the <laughs> books and like, I'm skipping the intro. I'm getting to the meat. I'm not doing on those questions. You can't do that with this book, right? Mm-hmm. Actually do the, the you know, um, daily reflections. Actually do the journaling activities because this is part of the work. And we're not telling you to do nothing we haven't done. And it culminates with, there's some step-by-steps around how you have this conversation. We actually provide the steps, one, two, three, four, right? They're listed. And so that will be, that would be my encouragement. The other thing that we have provided because we know that this is hard work and it's ongoing work. We have a website, healingconversationsonrace.com. And there are actually videos of us doing it ourselves, right? Of Mm -hmm. us engaging in healing conversations ourselves. So that if someone's like, what does this really look like? You can, you can see it there, but, but really it is commit to it, commit to, this is something that I think is important. This is something I believe that God calls us to do. Um, Find someone that you can do it with Um, for organizations or folks who, who those of you who already maybe have some decision-making power or you'll end up in a position where you will have some 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 influence within you know a higher ed institution or or wherever um have this done as a group right mm-hmm. so we're encouraging churches and their small groups take this book on and walk through it together um what would be beautiful no one's took it, taking us up on our offer yet but but i'm believing that one of your listeners listeners is going to take us yes. up on our whatever our our we think would be amazing let's have because most of our churches continue to be segregated that's the reality Mm -hmm. let's have a black majority church and a white majority church Mm. take this book on right or you know within organizations that you know don't have a great (laughs) a great deal of diversity take this on and plan for intentional cross-racial conversations after having gone through the book and we will help you facilitate that. We will help you facilitate that process. But but I think the the book itself is the key. One of the things I just want to emphasize, yeah. you know, we've tried not to have this as a super high level academic or something that's only content um, driven, which there are a lot of out there or a lot of like content. Here's what to and those are are good. Once you've absorbed the content and you're ready to actually get to the work. Welcome. Welcome to yeah. this journey with us because the process is is structured in such a way that it requires something of you as you engage. Yeah, yeah that's good. I want to ask also about students and classroom environments. Have you seen these ideas translate well into classrooms? It's It feels like a little different of a power dynamic if you're the professor and you're in a class, you're, you're leading a classroom. 
Yeah, I, I'll be interested to hear a little bit from Crystal too on this because I think you guys are using it in one of your classes right now, the book. And I haven't used the book in my class yet. I plan to next semester, but um, but I've used the ideas. And I find at first that my students have been a little bit hesitant to take on the idea of um, using the various practices as they're having conversations on race, specifically in my classes. But when, but when I model it for them, they go, oh, mm. that's what you mean. And then they try it themselves and they realize, oh, this was hard, but I like the outcome of it. Yeah. So that's what I've seen so far in the little that I've been able to use with my students in the classroom. And then we've done some larger events where we've had um, um, our doctoral students together from different programs and had them practice. And typically what we get from them is, can we do this longer? We need more time. I want to have more conversations. So they're really eating it up. Yeah, yeah, I did all that. So far, the feedback that we've gotten from students has been good. And so there are some definite um really explicit ways that I think this can be integrated into classroom settings, right, where it's one of the assigned tags. And so our co-author, um, Charles E. Johnson, he has been using it in one of his undergrad diversity classes and, um, you know, describes that it's been a really phenomenal experience mm. for students to have this as the guide to having these kind of difficult conversations, right? Because if you stick to the model, like it just, it's like the the bumpers, right? Yeah. You're, Keeps you, it keeps you on the straight and narrow for something that can get really, 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 you know, sideways. And I think that's the part that for instructors, even the idea of bringing up diversity issues in the classroom can raise our anxieties because what if somebody says something crazy, right? Like what if things get out of hand? Yeah. What if there's like a lot of tension? And so I think this sort of approach to it, um, even as an instructor, feels more guided feels more, okay, let's bring it back, right? Like we have, you know, designated activities, prompts to think about that it helps to kind of keep things structured in a way um, that I think reduces the anxiety because mm -hmm. it's not just a free-for-all conversation about race. I've seen those happen and folks can come out more harmed, right? Mm -hmm. And activated um, than, than they were before. So uh, and and then just as an instructor, I've been able to, similar to what Viola was just saying, kind of implement some of the practices in less explicit ways that have, um, I mean, it really, it really, Jenny, it's beyond the classroom. But I think once you start down this approach, you walk, you you position yourself to walk through the world just seeing folks in a different light again because we all like are coming you know up walking through the world with baggage and and narratives and our own imaginings about who people are and their motivations behind things and just all sorts of things connected to race um and starting just to unpack those bags and pull out things and question them like hmm where'd I get this old shirt from right it's just like auntie such and such that told me this right starting to just unpack all of that and begin to put more stuff in that looks like Christ mm -hmm. just just naturally helps you see your interactions with folks differently, right? And so I think that's the real key. Crystal and Viola share practical and actionable ideas for self-knowledge and relationship building. 
And if you pick up the book, you'll find many more prompts for personal, spiritual, and relational growth. I highly recommend their book, and I hope you check it out. Remember that you can find a link to the book and the IVP discount code IVPPOD25 in the show notes. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Crystal and Viola talk about how we get around that feeling of walking on eggshells. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Crystal and Viola. In your book, and especially in your chapter on acceptance, you talk about emotions a lot, and you talk about the layered emotions around race and often the process of discovering shame at the root of it. This really resonated with my own experience and also what I hear my kids talking about. And it reminded me of the way in our culture today, we are all walking on eggshells and we're navigating new terminology and how to do things right. And there's cancel culture and everyone feels scared and ashamed. So how can the heal model help us out of this tangle? It's a thing. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yes, it is a thing. It's, it's a whole thing. thing. It's a whole thing. Yes. We do talk a lot about, you know, um, secondary and primary emotions. And shame is one of those primary emotions where like, you know, if you, if you, and we see this all the time in our culture, the anger and the mm -hmm. rage and the shut this down and, you know, shut down conversations and ban this and, and all this kinds of stuff or revolt and turn over and burn the whole thing down. Right. But if you take, take our, our co-author Josh likes to say, take the elevator down, <laughs> take the elevator down. What's in the basement is shame mm -hmm. and guilt and, you know, the things that are the hard, heavy, nasty, uncomfortable emotions to wrestle with. And this is the sort of stuff we see in clinical work um, that, that it is much easier and in many times culturally acceptable to, to, um, present with the secondary emotions mm, yeah. to be angry and to be, you know, just, you know, all over the place. That's much more acceptable than actually dealing with or wrestling with what might yeah. be in the basement, right? The the shame and the guilt and that sort of stuff. So how do we untangle it? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard, right? Yeah. As I was saying, it, it's hard because each in person has to be willing to kind of look a little deeper. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we do a lot of like the journaling prompts in the book, because um, it takes a while to get there. If you're not used to it, if you're not used to trying to figure out, okay, I'm feeling really mad right now. What else is there going on with me? Uh, it takes a few steps and, and we try and say, well, okay, anger, you know, oftentimes it is covering up things like sadness 
and heard and shame uh, and shame being kind of like deep, that deeper even level. But even if someone can just get to some of that hurt or sadness or fear, um, that can be a big part of untangling it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it does it for each person. Everybody starts a different spot um, in this journey, and and some people are still you know, trying to kind of determine what do they feel <laughs> about things other than anger. Uh, and so we just, you know, encourage people just to slow things down in the conversation, just um, kind of sit for a minute uh, for yourself or for the other person, try and just even with a guess. You know, if I'm listening to somebody else, I might just say, so, so I know you're, you know, you're feeling pretty mad, but I also wonder if some of that you're just kind of sad about everything that you've been seeing in the news lately. Mm-hmm. Now, so if I can even do that for somebody, um, because they maybe they can't do it for themselves, that can slow the conversation down a little, get us a little bit lower, help us untangle um, some of um, those automatic reactions that we just want to cancel people or shut them out. Um, But it is intentional. It does have to be intentional. And and that's the hard part of it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think the, the unique Thing that we're trying to offer through this process. It goes back to what Viola was just sharing a minute ago, the bi-directional piece of this, right? That you <laughs> white brothers and sisters that I've been able to engage with in this way, and even, even just in regular conversations, when you are able to take, when folks are able to take the elevator down and it hits to the, the basement with all the shame and stuff packed up in there, there is often this... Um, you know, shame around the, the, on both sides around the way race dynamics have played out throughout the world, but particularly in the U.S., where for um, white people who are hearing about something like the institution of slavery, right, or, or, you know, Jim Crow, or you name it, the number of, you know, um, internment camps, and, you know, what have you, that, that there is this shame attached with the fact that, like, folks who look like me, and that I am a descendant from, have engaged in some really atrocious things. And so folks who are actually willing to, you know, be honest with that, I mean, it ends up in a in a negative, uncomfortable space that I am somehow by proxy or whatever it is, right? Not not maybe anything that I chose, but am associated with, you know, wrong and hurt and and really really bad um, um, things that have happened in the world. Where at the same time, people who identify with being a part of a marginalized or oppressed group, right? And I've had these conversations with my family members. I have a lot of these talks with my mom. <laughs> and there's a lot of conversation around this shame that really is attached to helplessness mm-hmm. and defensiveness and the 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 shame and the pain of being um of having a lack of control in your life and around circumstances and even with your own families and your own, you know, well-being. And so the source of it may come from different lived experiences, different histories, um, different exposures, but the feeling, right, the emotion that's attached to it is something that that we can relate to. When folks are able to actually go that deep through this model of being able to, you know, a person of color, you know, um, um, somebody, you know, maybe a white person, just folks from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. And we're also talking about within 
um, or across different racial and ethnic groups. I don't want it to seem like it's just sure. a black white thing, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of historical animosity between, you know, um, Korean folks and black folks, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, in particularly in Southern California, right? So even among different um, racial ethnic groups, but when folks are able to actually go that deep into conversation of sharing their own lived experience and recognizing where there are emotions attached to those experiences, painful emotions, we can usually see that there's some, there's, there's some commonalities in how it is that um, we've experienced pain, right? we've experienced pain. And we will continue to do that as long as we're, you know, mm -hmm. walking this earth. But the ability to have those conversations and share with folks in that way, there's just this, it's a transformative power that's hard to articulate, mm -hmm. where it's hard to, to villainize that person or that whole people group. Mm -hmm. It's hard to... Um, and this is what we talk about a lot more, be apathetic towards, mm -hmm. because that's probably the bigger issue that that uh, especially Christians are facing is maybe not like intentionally villainizing people or, you know, acting in quote unquote racist ways, but just being apathetic towards the hurt and the pain and the suffering yeah. of other people. It's hard to do that when you've had that kind of like yeah. deep experience with someone. Mm 